0: Sure, there were travel bans and tax plans, private planes and Puerto Rico pain, but if you pay attention to what the President of the United States had to say this week, there is only one story that could possibly be considered the biggest, most important story of the week, and that is the traitorous disrespect NFL players are showing the men and women of our military by kneeling while the national anthem plays before football games. Nothing else going on in America or the whole world matters half as much as condemning these players as unpatriotic. In Alabama last Friday, Trump told NFL owners, many of whom he counts among his personal friends, to fire them. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired, he's fired. And here's the real irony about this. It actually is an important story, of course, or at least it was. Colin Kaepernick started all this to protest injustice, police brutality, and the dehumanization of black people in America. Serious problems deserving serious attention. But what Trump did by speaking out against the protests, by questioning the patriotism of people speaking up peacefully to make our country better, is he made it about himself. And this past weekend, when more players than ever kneeled, and some owners joined them, and some whole team stayed behind in the locker room during the anthem, it wasn't really about that injustice anymore. Hardly anyone talked about it. It was about… Donald Trump. He turned it into a protest of himself. He took something that was serious and important, and he made it a spectacle. You know, that, more than anything else, is Donald Trump's true talent. It's almost a superpower. No matter what the issue is, no matter how important a principle or how many lives are at stake, the moment you throw Donald Trump into the mix, it's entirely about Donald Trump. And that's why he kept it up all week. This was the issue he tweeted about the most. It's the issue he talked about the most. It's the issue the White House was asked about the most. It was everything Trump cares about. Celebrity-driven entertainment, in this case football, an appeal to faux-patriotic jingoism that his most rabid supporters eat up. And of course, racist dog whistles, like this quote from Thursday. I have so many friends that are owners, and they're in a box. I mean, I've spoken to a couple of them. They say, we are in a situation where we have to do something. I think they're afraid of their players. You want to know the truth. Trump focused on this because more than anything else, it was custom made to bring him attention. And that's what Donald Trump cares about more than anything else in the world. I know that's not a particularly profound observation about him. 36 weeks into his presidency, we're all used to his childlike desperation for attention. But that doesn't mean we should accept it. Y'all know what's coming. This is not normal. Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney. There aren't words to describe what the people of Puerto Rico are going through right now. No power, no food, no water, no phone service, no medical supplies, and the utter destruction of homes, buildings, everything. We have no idea how long it's going to take to turn the island to minimal functionality, and it could be years before anything approaching normality returns. So what does Donald Trump have to say about all this? Weren't you paying attention in the last segment? I told you what he talks about. He talks about Donald Trump. He held a press conference with the president of Spain this week. And here's what he said when he was asked about Puerto Rico. Everybody has said it's amazing the job that we've done in Puerto Rico. We're very proud of it. Now, I'm sure Trump is surrounded by people who are telling him what an excellent job he's doing. And if his staff has managed to reduce his TV time to an hour or so of Fox & Friends, then he's not likely to hear any criticism of his performance either. But, There are real problems with the federal response to Hurricane Maria. For days, Trump blocked a suspension of the Jones Act, which kept foreign ships from joining the aid effort. He did this because American shipping companies asked him to. He finally gave in and suspended the law for 10 days, and I hope he extends that because this recovery has a lot of time left. He also restricted lawmakers from joining military transports to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands so they could see the devastation, which is going to matter when it comes to sending the islands the funds they need for recovery. Trump keeps saying getting aid to Puerto Rico is more difficult because it's an island in the middle of the ocean. And he's 100% right about that. And I hope when he brags about getting as much help to the island as quickly as possible, that he's telling the truth. And I hope he knows he's going to need to work to help these people over the entire course of his presidency, even if, God forbid, it goes for eight years. But I've said this before. These disasters are an opportunity for Trump to show exactly who he is. So who is he? He's a malignant narcissist who cares more for the credit he receives than for the lives of the people he's supposed to be serving. I'm sure there are a lot of people in the federal government doing their damnedest to help the people of Puerto Rico. And there's no doubt this is a logistical nightmare. It's going to be hard and it's going to be long. But there is something so ugly about watching the president, while hospitals are still trying to get fuel to power their generators, while thousands are sleeping at the San Juan airport, taking credit for a job well done. The job has barely started. President Trump and the Republicans introduced a new tax plan this week, and you need to listen to how he described it. That tax reform will protect low-income and middle-income households, not the wealthy, and well-connected. They can call me all they want. It's not going to help. I'm doing the right thing. And it's not good for me, believe me. That believe me is such a tell, isn't it? Well, the New York Times didn't take him at his word and did its own analysis of the plan. And it involved some guesswork because Trump still hasn't released his taxes and probably never will. But the Times estimated Trump could save more than a billion dollars if his own tax plan becomes law. A billion dollars. Why so much? Because, of course, the entire plan involves huge cuts for the wealthy. There are some low- and middle-income cuts thrown in for appearances, of course. They're not idiots. Well, they are. We'll, we'll get to that. But the big-ticket items are all for people with incomes that look like Donald Trump's, Stephen Mnuchin's, and Gary Cohn's. The estate tax? gone. Alternative minimum tax, gone. Highest income tax rate, slashed. Corporate income tax rate, slashed. This is a plan built to give rich people a lot of money. In other words, it's a pretty typical GOP tax plan. The logic to sell it, as always, is the same. If we give a bunch of money to our rich friends, they in turn will give it to you, the poors, out of the kindness of their hearts. Of course this is stupid, and the actual way to create jobs is to give more money to low- and middle-income people who will spend it, thus creating demand and the need for new hiring. But you didn't come here for an Econ 101 lesson. You came here to listen to Gary Cohn saying something monumentally stupid. So here you go. You're the one who charged his own brother for a Bluth frozen banana.
1: I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars?
0: Oh, sorry, that's a wrong clip. Here's Gary Cohn. Allow a family to keep another thousand dollars of their income. What does that mean? They can renovate their kitchen. They can buy a new. They can. They can buy a new car. You can see how I mix those two clips up. They're practically the same. Honestly, could anyone be more out of touch? You think you can buy a car for one thousand dollars? I get that he's rich enough not to have to look at his bills, but does he really think it costs a thousand dollars to remodel a kitchen? It's that kind of stupidity that produces tax plans like this. We'll throw a pittance at the poorers to shut them up while pocketing huge piles of cash for ourselves. And if they complain, we'll just say it'll create jobs. How stupid do they think the American people are that they can keep trying this crap over and over again, especially when it failed so spectacularly during the Bush years not that long ago? I mean, okay, a lot of people did vote for Donald Trump. So maybe they can fool us. Let's just move on. Listen, I for one am glad we're all safe now. With Hillary Clinton locked away in a maximum security prison cell for her crimes against humanity, we can all breathe a little easier. Has there ever in the history of mankind been a worse crime than doing emails? I think not. Needless to say, no one in President Trump's drain-the-swamp administration of corruption-fighting badassery would ever do the emails. Emails are bad, especially using a private email address for government work, which is exactly what Trump wanted to lock Clinton up for. I mean, after a year and a half of Trump's complaints and accusations about Hillary Clinton's email, imagine how hypocritical it would be if anyone in his White House let any government business get near a private email address. Imagine how much worse it would look if it were his own Daughter and son in law using private email addresses to conduct government business. God, that would look just terrible. Yep, really, really bad. Thank goodness that would never, ever happen. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump would never use private email to do government work. That would be beyond the pale. Couldn't happen. Nope. Never. Guys, it happened. Let's take a little stroll around Trump's cabinet this week, because guys, they are up to some shady shit. I want to start where we left off last week, when we discovered that Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price had been spending your hard-earned tax dollars on private jets he didn't need. The, the thing you have to understand about Tom Price is that he's a scumbag who believes the government shouldn't help you get health care coverage but does believe the government should pay tens of thousands of dollars to fly him between Philly and D.C. This week, it got even worse. Turns out it wasn't just hundreds of thousands in unnecessary private jet charters. He also used military planes to fly himself and his wife to Europe while his staff flew commercial. Those cost hundreds of thousands more, meaning he spent more than a million dollars on travel that could be replaced with commercial flights. But don't fear. After Trump made it clear he was unhappy with price not for wasting taxpayer money, of course, but for embarrassing Donald Trump, Price promised to reimburse taxpayers for the cost of his seat on these flights. Not for the cost of the flights, but his seat. Meaning he's paying back about $52,000 for the trips. And I know what you're thinking. Can Price even afford that much on his government salary? But don't worry. Because I'm sure you'll remember that when Tom Price was in Congress, he introduced legislation that would directly benefit a company he owned stock in. And he also got a sweetheart deal on some stock in an Australian company. So I wouldn't worry about his ability to make money. Instead, let's focus on his ability to fuck the American people. Because he's really good at that. We know Tom Price and the Republicans hate Obamacare. They've made that perfectly clear, even though they can't come up with a plan to replace it they can come up with plenty of plans to screw it up. And the simplest thing they can do is sabotage efforts to help people sign up for insurance. That was one of the key parts of the ACA's creation of the individual marketplace. There would be lots of help to guide people signing up for plans, letting them know when they can enroll, helping them choose the right plans for them. But under price, HHS has stopped those efforts wherever it can. They cut budgets for ads promoting sign-up, And this week, they stopped sending regional staff to state enrollment events. Now, that may seem like a small move, but to the people who work on this issue, they might as well put up a giant billboard saying, we don't want you to sign up for Obamacare. And even if you don't like the program that helps people get insurance, there's something especially insidious about trying to stop people from signing up for it. But let's get back to wasteful spending, because Price isn't the only member of Trump's cabinet to waste your money on crap he doesn't need. The delightful Scott Pruitt, who believes his job as head of the Environmental Protection Agency is to protect corporations from environmental protection, is doing his best to win a contest with Price for the worst wasting of your money. He's taken some unnecessary military and charter jets, too, although admittedly Price has the advantage here in terms of volume. What Pruitt excels in is creativity. First, he has a gigantic security detail—18 people protecting him around the clock, costing twice what his predecessors charged the government for security. And while I personally think Scott Pruitt is a dick, I don't think the head of the EPA is a major security target. Nothing wrong with a cabinet member getting security, of course, but Pruitt seems to think James Bond is going to break into his underground lair at any moment. And of course, like any supervillain, he needs a soundproof booth in his private office. Folks, I'm not kidding the head of the EPA installed a soundproof booth in his office at the cost of $25,000. I like to think he just slides in there a few times a day and whispers, the environment fucking sucks. Now, like Scott Pruitt, Ryan Zinke believes his job is essentially the opposite of what it is. Instead of being a steward of federal lands, he wants to rent them off to, well, not the highest bidder, but really any bidder who wants to plunder them for natural resources. The problem for him is the sort of people who go to work at the Interior Department for their careers tend to be the kind of people who want to protect public lands, which is why Zinke went in front of a group of oil and gas executives and claimed one-third of his agency staff was disloyal to Trump. But guess what? It's not their job to be loyal to the president. And while he's their boss, I'd like to think the staff of the Interior Department would do what they can to protect federal lands. But Zinke has plans to fix this problem. Between staff reductions and shifting people around to jobs they're not qualified for, he hopes to whip his department into shape. And by into shape, I mean completely unable to do their jobs. And we know he means it, because you know how you can tell when a Republican official is telling the truth? There's a trick to it. If his lips are moving, he's lying. Unless he's speaking to a group of oil and gas executives. (laughs) Trump introduced the third, yes, the third version of his Muslim ban this week. And I've talked a lot about the previous versions on this podcast. But the most important thing to keep in mind when thinking about these arbitrary and pointless travel bans is the real people whose lives they affect. People like Cheyenne Modaris.
1: My mom actually uh, applied for, um, uh, sponsored her her, uh, sibling, her sister, my aunt, um, to come here uh, she she submitted the application I think back in 2012, um, has been waiting, waiting, waiting. Um, I'm actually getting married uh, in September of 2018. I was hoping that uh, my cousins and aunts and uncles would be able to join me in and, and, uh, being in Maryland for my wedding um, and unfortunately it looks like that may not happen.
0: Shan is the legal counsel for the National Iranian American Council and has also been a lawyer in private practice focusing on civil rights. He represented the family of Trayvon Martin. And his story is just one among many. He's heard from hundreds of other people who are now left in legal limbo, confused and angry about the new policy.
1: Since Sunday evening when this proclamation was released, um, we sent out an initial uh, analysis of of the text, um, and we've been receiving uh, really inundated with emails and calls um since sunday um, we've fielded approximately um 200 emails and calls just to our office um, with people who are are personally affected by the terms of of the proclamation Um, a lot of confusion about the terms um, because you got to remember this is now the third version of the travel ban um, within the last nine months or so um so it seems like every few months um iranian americans have to uh Refamiliarize themselves with um, the immigration laws and the newest policies and how it affects them and um, whether they will be able to be united with their family, if at all. Um, so, a lot of uh, concern and consternation um, within the Iranian American community, a lot of confusion, um, a lot of anger and frustration because um, we're hearing from a lot of people who've been following the rules for uh, sometimes years. Um, and now they're they're forced to be in a situation where after years of waiting, after paying fees, after paying for travel and, and hotel accommodations to go to these uh, visa interviews abroad in Dubai and in um, uh, Armenia and other places across the country or across the globe, um, that now after doing all of that, um, now their dream of, of being united with their family member in America is ripped away from them once again
0: so how is this newest version of the ban worse than the ones that have come before
1: one of the more cruel things that it does is that it's it's now a categorical ban uh, against immigrant visas um, so a complete suspension of immigrant visas and a uh, suspension of non-immigrant visas uh, with the exception of f m and j visas which are student and foreign exchange visas um, so, in many ways, uh, it's more cruel because it's taken away after October 18th this bona fide exception, um, which, which uh, was, was given to us by the Supreme Court, of course. Um, and it, it completely is eliminated after October 18th, and they're opting for a more case by case approach um, to uh, have everyone who is denied for a visa or, or doesn't fit within that narrow exception um, to apply for uh, uh, waivers. Um, and we still are, are unclear about the, the process for the waivers, but uh, it appears that it will be very similar to the second executive order. It'll be highly subjective um, and it will be at the discretion of these officers.
0: Now, Trump added North Korea and Venezuela to the ban to pretend that it's no longer a ban focused on Muslims. But as Cheyenne explains, it's a cosmetic change, not a substantive one.
1: At the very core of it, we still are left with six uh, majority Muslim countries, Um, and North Korea, which uh, last year in 2016 sent around 100 people grand total throughout the entire year to the United States. Um, In addition to Venezuela, um, where a majority of the people will continue to get visas, it's just that the uh, travel ban now applies to government officials of Venezuela.
0: But make no mistake, the legal challenge against this ban will not be easy. I asked Cheyenne what it's going to look like moving forward.
1: It becomes a little tougher because um, of all the nuances and, and all these tailor-made bans that have been issued country by country. Um, so in that sense, it becomes a little tougher. But like I said, this is still a Muslim ban. Um, the intent has not changed. Um, the The racial animus and the xenophobia that motivated the first executive order, second executive order, and now this proclamation has not changed. Um, you know this is still an attempt to fulfill a flawed campaign promise to um, have a total and complete shutdown of Muslims from the United States Um, he tried with the first executive order um, the second executive order uh, you know you see successive courts across the country strike those attempts down um, and now we're faced with yet a third uh, version of the original ban And really, it's just unfortunate that, uh, number one, um, these attempts keep coming out of this administration month after month, um, but also that uh, our elected members of Congress have not stepped up to uh, protect their constituents, protect American families, and and just protect fundamental American ideals and values from um, this erosion uh, that is uh, threatening to become official immigration policy of the United States. Um, It's just unfortunate all around.
0: But there's one argument I hope will convince the Supreme Court to overturn these racist bans. They do absolutely nothing to keep us more safe.
1: It does nothing to make us safer. Um, And if you look at the countries targeted Iran, for example, um, not a single uh, Iranian has committed a lethal act of terror on U.S. soil ever. Um, You know, it's just if you look at the countries that are targeted, it's not countries that terror threats uh, historically have emanated from rather it's countries that America does not have politically friendly relationships with Um, so the national security justifications that uh, the administration is putting forth are are just not true um, or or don't seem to be supporting uh, the countries that they are listing as being banned so in that sense, it does nothing to make us safer, but I would also argue that it makes us much less safe uh, to an extent, because um, we're now directing limited uh, State Department resources to uh, implementing this nonsensical travel ban against people that don't historically pose a threat of terror to the United States. Um, and, and we're you know diverting resources away from proven security measures that have been uh, actually proven to... Uh, prevent acts of terror or terrorists from entering the United States you know when you have a State Department that's already understaffed already underfunded and you're further diverting resources away from proven security measures um, I think that that does a lot for making America less safe and and also uh, you know by uh, by stoking these fears and and this racial animus and xenophobia um, it makes America less safe because you're seeing a, a rise in hate crimes. You're seeing a rise in um, racial animus towards Iranians and others. And um you know, it, it's just making America less safe as well.
0: Finally, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something kind of controversial. It is my personal belief that the President of the United States should not announce sensitive national security information before verifying it's true. I know, that's pretty out there. I told you it would be controversial. This week, Trump took to Twitter to announce Iran had just test-fired a new ballistic missile, which is pretty important news. He must have gotten that information from the CIA, or maybe the Defense Intelligence Agency, or some super-advanced secret satellite surveillance, or from an old video on the internet. Yeah, it was that last one. There was no new missile test. Trump didn't verify the facts with any intelligence agency or even check to see if it were true, if it were something he should be tweeting about. He just tweeted it because he's an idiot. That's it for another week with an impulsive man boy as our president. Thanks again to Cheyenne Moderis for coming on to talk about Trump's latest Muslim ban. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash the trump scorecard. You can always hit me up on Twitter at Jesse Bernie. And remember, you can find links to all the stories I've talked about on today's podcast on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. You can't wear the pink socks relative to mm-hmm. breast cancer. The Trump scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Bernie. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week. And remember, this is not normal.